listening to Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis. Thanks so much for tuning in. New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu made national headlines last year when he had the Confederate statues in his old city removed. He was at the front of a national wave of Confederate statue removals. That's as the South reconciles a history steeped in white supremacy and reverence for the defenders of slavery. Landrieu, a white man leading a majority black city, received a lot of attention for this speech on his decision to remove those statues. You see, New Orleans is truly a city of many nations, a melting pot, a bubbling cauldron of many cultures. There is no other place quite like it in the world that so eloquently exemplifies the uniquely American motto, e pluribus unum unum, out of many, we are one. But there are also other truths about our city that we must confront. New Orleans was one of America's largest slave markets, a port where hundreds of thousands of souls were bought, sold, and shipped up the Mississippi River to lives of forced labor, of misery, of rape, and of torture. America was a place where nearly 4,000 of our fellow American citizens were lynched, 540 in Louisiana alone, where our courts enshrined separate but equal, where freedom riders were beaten to a bloody pulp. So when people say to me that the monuments in question are history, well, what I just described to you is our history as well. And it is a searing truth. And it immediately begs the question why there are no slave ship monuments, no prominent markers on public land to remember the lynchings or the slave blocks, Nothing to remember this long chapter of our lives of pain, of sacrifice, of shame, all of it happening on the soil of New Orleans. So for those self-appointed defenders of history and the monuments, they are eerily silent on what amounts to historical malfeasance, a lie by omission. There is a difference, you see, between remembrance of history and the reverence of it. For America, New Orleans, it has been a long and winding road marked by tragedy and triumph, but we cannot be afraid of the truth. As President George W. Bush said at the, at the dedication ceremony, for the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and I quote, a great nation does not hide its history. It faces its flaws and it corrects them. Landro writes in his new book, In the Shadows of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History, that the decision to remove the statues came with aggressive resistance. He even struggled to find contractors willing to remove Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee from their pedestals. But he did have them removed before he completes his second term in May of this year. Mitch Landrieu joins us today. Mayor Landrieu, welcome to Detroit Today. Great. Thank you for having me. So happy to be with you. Yeah. You know, I wanted to start by talking about um, my husband and I, who were actually on vacation for celebrating our anniversary in New Orleans uh, last year. And we happened to be in the city in that period of time between the removal of the Jefferson Davis statue and the Robert E. Lee statue. 
So it was it was an interesting time to be in the city, and we were riding the streetcar from the Garden District to the French Quarter, and we have to go around the Robert E. Lee statue, and it's cordoned off, you know, and there weren't there wasn't actually anybody around it at the time, but it was all blocked off so people couldn't get to it. And I think the interesting part of it was that my husband is black, I am white, and although we ha- we reached the sim- same conclusion about what needed to happen to the statues and that it was sort of a long time coming, it felt like they were it was landing on us in a very viscerally different way. And that mm-hmm. there was there was something that struck him emotionally about the existence of that statue that didn't strike me the same way. And so as I'm reading your book, it occurs to Which me Which was what? The, the, the way he was feeling about it or the way I was feeling yeah. about it? The, well, either way. I don't know. I mean, it would be hard for me to describe what was going through his mind, but he felt there was a certain element of disgust, I guess, that 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 while I was disgusted just as an American, it was bothersome to him. And my husband is not easily rattled, but I would say that he felt rattled seeing the statue. Yeah. And I wanted that to talk very, to you. Uh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say I wanted to talk to you about even if we're coming from different places and we're landing in the same conclusion, it is that different place, this realization that you seem to be writing about in your book, the realization about the difference that we feel about these statues. Well, it's one of the things I, I came to know. I write about this a lot in the book. I grew up differently from other whites in the South, evidently, and I grew up in a, in an integrated neighborhood. And uh, I grew up in a very, by all accounts, racially sensitive family. But I never, those statues never really bothered me. I never was aware or awoke to, you know, what they meant. And it wasn't until my friend, who happened to be Went Marcellus, said to me, you know, four years ago, and I would, I would like you to think about taking those statues down. And I said, why? And he said, well, do you know who put them up or why they're there? And then he said two other things. One, have you ever thought about looking at those things from my perspective? And two, did you know Louis Armstrong left here and never wanted to come back because of him? And that's when, I mean, really something changed in me. And I thought, well, let me try that. And if you had this experience with your husband that you've just enunciated, when you, when you are an African-American or you put yourself in an African-American shoes and you look at that monument, as you articulated that you just passed by, you were on the streetcar, which is the main thoroughfare going to the main circle. I mean, it is right there for everybody to see. It's not in, in some far off place that people can go to if they want to explore the history of the Civil War. I mean, it is right in the center of everything, and it was put there on purpose. And actually, it was put there to send that very message to your husband, the one that he got which was that you're not worth anything, that we still are hovering over the city and indicating to you that the cause that we, the Confederate generals, fought for was a just cause and a noble cause, not a cause to be reviled and never repeated. I think what you were sensing from him, if if your articulation of how he felt was right, was that revulsion he felt as an African-American male in the um, uh, American city in the beginning of the 21st century, that we still allow statues like that to stand in places of reverence. So in the book, I write about those feelings that I've heard from African-Americans, and then, of course, from whites like you who said, well, it it hit me in a different way, and I kind of just conceptually think that it's unjust, but it it doesn't viscerally make me want to run away. And I think that's instructive for us as we try to come to some kind of reconciliation on the issue of race, 
uh, in America. And and so the book is is about the statutes, but it's really more about uh, having an open invitation to people reconsider what they think based on what they thought they knew. And now that they know that what they thought was wrong, whether they're willing to take you know, take the country in a, in a better direction. Tell me about the bill of goods that we have been sold, specifically Southerners have been sold and white Southerners, about why these statues existed in the first place. It seems to me like it's a, a campaign that was extremely successful in convincing people that this is not about hate. This is about Southern pride. Well, I think this battle's been going on since the end of the Civil War. And, you know, again, uh, on behalf of all Southerners, we have a little bit of a chip on our shoulders because we hear from people from the North, you know, that they don't have racism, and, and we do. And, and, of course, that's not true. Racism and hatred and bigotry exist all over the United States of America, which is one of the reasons why I think the speech that I gave really went viral, because people sense that in America right now we're taking a step backward on the very essential American ideal that which is pretty basic, is that we should be judging people based on the behavior. We should not be judging people based on their skin color, based on their religion, based on their nation of origin, uh, based on their sexual orientation. And I think it resonated because people know that if, you don't, if you're not careful to protect freedom and liberty and democracy, you can go backwards. But having said that, I, I think that we in the South have a special obligation since we were in it uh, in a very big way to speak forcefully to the truth of what happened. And not only because it's the right thing to do, but because, and I write this in the book, that, that um, we, we were worse for it. You know, one of the things that happened after slavery, of course, was that five million African Americans and other people, whites of good conscience, who were not comfortable with an exclusive environment, left. And, of course, came to Detroit, or they went to Chicago, or they went to Los Angeles, or they went to uh, other places and shared their gifts with the rest of the world. Great chefs, great artists, great architects, great poets great musicians. And of course, the South lost all of that valuable talent. And um, it was all based on the fact that even after the war occurred, the Confederacy who lost it wanted to continue to propagate the notion that the war was fought for a noble cause. And I thought it was important, especially as, a, as an elected official and a white man from the South, to state really clearly and unequivocally that the Confederacy which was never a real governmental entity. The Confederacy fought to destroy the United States of America. They weren't patriots in that cause. They were warriors who tried to destroy the nation. And we, con- we condemn that now in the United States of America, but for some reason we hang on to the myth that because it happened such a long time ago that somehow there was something to be revered about that. And you have to kind of state that, no, they were actually on the wrong side of history and the wrong side of humanity. That's part one. And part two the African-American community needs to hear loudly and clearly that we, the people of the United States, understand and accept the historical fact that the war was fought over the cause of slavery, period. It wasn't economics. It wasn't all this other stuff. It wasn't a noble cause. And that, unfortunately, is just very hard for some people to say these days, and it shouldn't be, because if we can't say that very simple thing, it's hard for us to get to the next generation of um, resolution on the issue of, of race. We're speaking with Mitch Landrieu right now. He's the mayor of New Orleans and the author of a new book called In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History. Uh, mayor Landrieu, um, there's a part of the book where you're where you talk about the parallels between David Duke, who kind of came up politically at the same time as you in Louisiana, 
and the demagoguery, uh, the demagoguery of David Duke and of President Trump, and that there's a lot of parallels there. And it occurs to me that maybe, maybe this is also a parallel with how we deal with race in this country, historically and in modern day, and that it used to be more overt um, the way that you'd see from a, a David Duke, but even he has toned down his rhetoric, and that a lot of the racism we see today is so coded that sometimes it's hard for especially white people, to see it for what it is. How do you get past that coded element that protects people from really discussing race and, as you say, going through it rather than around it or over it? Well, that's a great great question, and it's a hard one to peel apart, which is why race is so difficult. So let me try to state with clarity a couple of things so people don't misunderstand uh, what it is I'm trying to communicate. Number one, not everybody that voted for Donald Trump was a racist. There are many people that voted for him before they actually realized, you know, what what he was, um, because of what they thought his philosophy was, or because he communicated that he saw them when nobody else saw them. There were some people that voted for President Obama that that changed and voted for him for for, for other reasons. However, there was a clear number of people that him that were responding to what you were speaking to just a minute ago, which we call coded language. So the slogan, Make America Great, is a slogan that makes everybody feel good. It's just when you put the comma and you say the word again, that comma and the word again, Make America Great Again, sends shivers down the spines of people who immediately say, well, wait, 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 wait. That means we're going to go back. Where do you want to go back to? When was America great? And when you start throwing the time frames in there, it was when people were horribly oppressed. And that, that, that comma again thing is, a, is what we call in the South a dog whistle. Uh, and people who are haters and who are racist and who tend towards white supremacy, uh, they then begin, they hear that and then they come out of the woods. Literally, when President Trump started running, David Duke resurrected himself again. White supremacists avowedly came out now. They weren't hiding anymore. And so what I was speaking to in the book is, is, is a notion that what's happening on the national level in some quarters of this country happened in Louisiana back in the 90s, and then, of course, back in the 30s, and we've seen this before. And when that occurs, when people who are avowedly white supremacists step out and begin to talk about white supremacy, you have to say that, look, in America, we have a lot of room for people that think differently. We can take a conservative approach to government and finances or a liberal approach, and we can fight every day because you know, in, in democracy, the battle is in the marketplace of ideas. But one thing we cannot accept, we will not countenance, we will not go back to, is this notion that whites somehow reign supreme to African Americans or Hispanics or people from other countries that, that uh, may, may cause some people some concern. And, it's, and Donald Trump has trafficked in that a bit. You saw after the Charlottesville incident, this false equivocation. Um, his unwillingness to call out David Duke, and that's just that is that is inappropriate. And when that happens, irrespective of what you might think about his position on trade or anything else, you have to say, Mr. President, that is a code for it's okay to hate, and we can't do that in America. That's not who we are. Well, <clears throat> pardon me. This book, you know, it's a it's a really excellent memoir and. Um, sort of uh, concentration or a dissertation on the the thoughts about your thoughts about race but it does occur to me that your second term is about to end as mayor of New Orleans and though I've heard you say a couple times you aren't thinking about running for president the the types of the type of rhetoric you use at certain points in the book including calling out president trump 
um, makes me believe that perhaps you are considering either that track or another um, elected office position in the future. What, what are your thoughts about your future now? Well, I, w- I want to just push back on that notion for a second. Um, sure. I, I gave the speech that I gave years ago uh, to speak specifically to things I heard, things I saw, and things I felt I needed to testify to that I was able to discern because I was the mayor of a major American city. And in the United States of America, sometimes we always wait on the president and who that person is to direct where we're going. My theory is that there are lots of people who, through their personal action, through their civic action, through whatever office they may be serving on a smaller level, can move the country in dramatic ways. And so I was trying to speak really to that. Uh, the book is, is, a, is, a, is as, as you said, it's not a dissertation, but it really is a plea. It's an invitation to Americans to open their mind. It's not intended to be a stepping stone anywhere. It's just, it's just an attempt to try to see things that I couldn't see and to try to help guide people to where they had a hard time getting. Uh, as you noticed, I'm at the end of a 30-year term. I served 16 years in the legislature. I served six as lieutenant governor, and I served eight as mayor, and I was given the privilege of seeing things and becoming aware of things. I just wanted to share that with the country, especially in this moment. Now, as it turns out, President Trump is through his first year of office. I think a lot of people, even those people that did not vote for him, vote did not vote for him, hoped that the office would form him um, better than it has formed him. But it's become clear that for some reason, and I think is inexplicable to many people, that he continues to govern um, in, in, a, in an incendiary way. You can't, you can't say things like all Mexicans are rapists, or all immigrants are criminals, or all people that come from Africa or Haiti come from asshole countries without people hearing that what you intend to do is to judge me by my race, my creed, my color. And that's weird. That's just not who we are. And I think people are dispirited at the moment. And so what's un- happening in an unusual way is that something that occurred in New Orleans years ago is began to resonate around the country. It's worth taking a moment to think about, and it's worth, um, you know, folks hopefully reading the book and many other books that have been written and the work of many other people and beginning to have a a moment where we start to become, you know, that aspirational thing that we all think about, that more perfect union. Everybody knows we're not going to get there, but it is important to note when we're moving forward and when we're moving backward. And, you know, we're having a moment now where, in my opinion, we're moving backward. And as a country, either politically or socially or spiritually, we have to stop and think about what it is that we're doing because the country will be worse off for it if we don't. Well, in in your life of public service now, if the country yearns and calls for something to move forward and you are the right person to lead that charge, would you not consider uh, challenging perhaps Donald Trump in the voting booth as well as... as um, well, go ahead. you know, that's a, let, me, let me see if I can answer that question and not be disingenuous about it. It's not my intent to do that. I'm not planning to do that. I, I happen to have a lot of hope in the younger generation. I think what we saw this past weekend with the um, young uh, teenagers really calling the nation to task is maybe, you know, foreshadowing a movement where a new generation of leaders is going to step up. There will not be a dearth of people that want to challenge the president of the United States and the many of them that I think would be really great and competent leaders. In politics, you never say never. You don't really know what the future holds, but it's not something that I'm working on now or intending to do. What happens in the future is, is anybody's guess at this point. 
Mayor Mitch Landrew, I wish I could uh, pick your brain for another 15, 20 hour long <laughs> conversation. Um, uh, I really well, enjoy We may it. have time to talk again, but thank you so much. And, and I think your insights about the book are really important. And, and it's written not as a judgment, but as an invitation. Uh, and I, I hope people accept the invitation to read it and consider where we are. Good luck to you in your next venture after you leave public office. Great. Thank you so much. Take care. That's going to be it for us today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. If it's right today, is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producer is Gus Navarro. The Detroit Today theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.